Welcome to the State of Developer Education, a podcast by Major League Hacking. We explore how technical leaders are creatively tackling the developer education gap to help prepare the next generation of technologists for the real world and build businesses that can adapt to any changes in the technology ecosystem. I'm your host, John Gottfried. Welcome back to the State of Developer Education. I am really excited for this week's episode with Pranav, who's a developer advocate at Pangea. Pranav has actually been a longtime hacker, member of the MLH community, and now a developer advocate for the past handful of years, working in both security and traditional developer platforms. Thank you for uh, being here. How's it going today? I'm excited to be here. Doing great. I mean, excited to dive in and talk about some cool stuff. Sounds good. The place I like to start with all of my guests is origin stories. So I love to hear, like, how did you get started with programming and really like end up where you are now? I think I have a pretty simple story into how I got into programming. I got introduced to programming per se from more of a problem solving perspective. My parents were engineers. I grew up in an Indian family, so it's expected. But that being said, so it was primarily... I think my first true actual engineering experience was when I tried to build this product to solve a problem that I noticed in 11th grade in high school. Before that, I'd been, you know, doing scratch programming at school and all that stuff, but like never really truly found it as exciting. But in 11th grade, I grew up in a city called Bangalore, India, a city with, you know, it had about close to about 250 lakes in 1960. And today it has like under 38 clean lakes. And we used to be called the city of lakes, but primarily encroachment and domestic pollution, a lot of it got destroyed. And there was a very little amount of data collected on those lakes around the city. So my friend and I decided to go ahead and figure out if there's a way to like collect data. And initially we were talking about like creating like ways to sample it and like ways to do stuff. So I think it was only after that I was just like, wait, hold up. We could use like a simple little IoT device that could like just plug in these values and like pull it out and disseminate that data. So it was about one and a half to two year long project where I was, you know, I went through multiple iterations, but yeah, we built a device called Flowbot that had a simple little Arduino mega sitting on it with like eight different sensors to look at it on different parameters and quality. So I think that was my initial sense and entrance into programming simply because I was just like, wow, like you could use tech to solve from like data dissemination that traditionally you'd have to like get a sample, go to a lab that's expensive. It takes time. And that was my initial introduction. So like we did that project and we got selected for the Intel ISEF. You've probably heard of that. And we won like second place there, but we tested that product out in eight different lakes in Bangalore and we were able to collect data on it. So that was a super fun project and that's what kind of got me into it. And then afterwards I started I got into like civic problem solving. So I was very involved with this one organization in India called Read Benefit that basically mobilizes young people to solve like civic issues. So like finding garbage black spots, finding broken streetlights. These are like common things that you see in India more often, especially in cities. So I worked on a couple of dashboards there in partnership with Read Benefit to kind of be able to track a lot of this stuff. So anyway, that was my basic introduction. And I think where it really got me like kind of the turning point was primarily when during COVID-19, basically we announced that it was the pandemic and we were all sent home and all that stuff. 
I basically noticed, I mean, I was in college and I came back home and I, I noticed that in India, at least, there was a lack of information about COVID-19 in its early days in, in other languages. India is like a country with like 17 different nationally recognized languages and a thousand different dialects. So it was really hard to disseminate this information. So my friend and I, we worked on a simple, like, you know, if you remember back in the day, there were these checkers, which would tell you if you like, were likely to have COVID-19 or not based on your symptoms. And I know it sounds kind of stupid today because we have like actual PCR tests, but we built like a COVID self-checker that was like multilingual. And we built that, we created like a volunteer effort with like close to about like 20 different volunteers. And we're able to translate that into like 12 different languages. And that hit about 13,000 users just from a few states in India. So I was more interested in hacking it than really like performance engineering. So for example, for that, I didn't know how to use React. So I literally built my own like component rendering system that would take a JSON file and using jQuery, our good old friend, go and like insert it and inject that as HTML. So it was kind of fun. But yeah, so my introduction was primarily like specific problem solving that kind of had to use tech. And then I got into it from there. That's really cool. Uh, so you mentioned earlier that you were doing Scratch and yeah. then suddenly you got second place in this international competition. Yeah, yeah. Were you learning like coding beyond Scratch in school? Was this like purely on your own? Like that's obviously a pretty big yeah. jump to make. How, how did that yeah, actually yeah. happen? Again, I was probably learning Scratch in like fourth grade. So I know a lot of people have fun building Scratch, but I never had as much fun. I think where I had a lot of fun and we can get into this later, but that's kind of what attracted me to DevRel was really being able to like find problems and solving it with the hackiest solution possible and not the best solution. So coming back to the train of thought, Scratch didn't excite me as much, but then bridging that gap, when we were looking at this problem, we were initially thinking of like different ways of solving it. Like there were some ways of just taking water samples and like creating the system where we could have like, like a couple of contacts labs that could test it and doing like some head, like it had a lot of a huge burden on having a lot of manpower to do this. But I think when I kind of got introduced to, oh, you could build a tech solution for this and it could solve it. And I think it was primarily because I was talking to a bunch of engineers at that point and they were like, oh, you could actually do this. We have the technology that off the shelf parts that exist today and you can build it yourself. So I think that was kind of where it jumped. I got it. But again, like that whole iteration of that whole project, for example, took about two years. Like it was first on, it was first built on uh, two pieces of thermocol, styrofoam, and a bunch of sensors placed across. And we tried to take that to a lake and we were like, okay, the electronics are going to get fried if we put it close to water. So then I got some help from some of the product designers I was able to get in touch with. And they were pretty excited to work on this and contribute and they helped with it. So it was like, it was a two year process. It wasn't overnight, but we finally got to like a really nice device that that kind of was able to do all that. That's really cool. So you've always kind of had that hackery, figure it out mindset. And I saw that you had started your own education company at one point too. Yeah. It seemed like this was like maybe going on in parallel to a lot of these other projects you had going on around like COVID trackers and like, whatever else, right? Like you had a lot of balls in play at any given time. Now that you're in kind of like a DevRel role, how does that like founder hacker mentality actually apply to the job? I think it's pretty interesting because a couple of different types of people that get into DevRel and like, I see a lot of themes of 
number one, there are people that have just like been hacking stuff together. There have been people that have been building side projects after side projects. And then they're like, oh, I could actually do this for my full-time job and educate people at the same time, right? And there's a second kind of people that come in from more of like the developer media space, the people that are very influential and are very successful at educating people. So you have some amazing developer advocates like Lee Robinson, Leo. These people are very famous, but a lot of these people started out by making YouTube videos and they're pretty amazing at it, right? But at the same time, you see, you have like amazing dev advocates from companies like Vercel. You have like Stephen Day, you have like Hassan and you have all these people that they're just builders. They just keep hacking projects after the other and in a way they educate people. It's kind of like, oh, I can build this with Vercel and too. So I think that's kind of the two trends of people I have seen. But I think in general, like having that founder mindset is extremely important because what I've noticed is I work as a dev advocate at an enterprise as well as at Pangea where I'm at, at a startup. And I've noticed that, and this is a hot take, but dev advocacy usually succeeds at a startup. The main reason I say this is primarily because, I mean, firstly, it's a new role, right? So you can define the role, you can define what the things are, but it's not as traditional as a software engineer, right? So the KPIs are... I don't want to say hard to define, but like they're a lot different, right? But all I'm saying is that these dev advocacy roles usually succeed at startups simply because people who are dev advocates at startups are more willing to take more risk, more willing to throw different types of spaghetti at the wall and not just the same kind of thing. So I think having that founder mentality of like throwing different kinds of spaghetti at the wall, seeing what works, tracking metrics, being like very focused on it, it's just the same as just the founding process of thinking of an idea, talking to customers, finding product market fit, iterating again and again and again. So I think being a founder, like having that mentality is, is extremely important. There's a lot to unpack there. So I agree with you that developer advocacy or DevRel or whatever we want to call it, at yeah. like startups, functions very differently than a bigger company. And yeah, yeah. often like, allows for a lot more kind of like creative exploration and like tinkering. And over time, as companies mature, there's kind of like a natural progression to making DevRel something trackable and scalable and repeatable, which makes it look really different from that like hackery, tinkery, you know, like startup mode. And like there are pros and cons, I think, to either side of it. But you're absolutely right that like having some kind of mentality of like wanting to try things and wanting to like play with technology and do cool stuff. I actually think that can be beneficial to either environment, but sometimes it's harder to get it to pass muster in like a more enterprisey company. Some CMO or like VP of marketing is probably setting your metrics. At a startup, it may be a little bit more abstract. And I'm curious, like, what does tinkering or like building stuff do to concretely benefit the overall business from what you've yeah. seen? Because I think there are a lot of things, but you know, yeah, you yeah, yeah. have more I interesting agree. answers. I agree. I think especially as a developer company that serves the API first, I think what's the most important thing API first companies that target developers need to have is a great developer experience. And that ties into a lot of developer education, right? How can you educate developers to use your particular format of doing stuff differently to be better developers, to be able to build their apps faster, to be able to do a lot more that they could do with the same amount of time. 
So I think the business benefit that comes from this is primarily that you have a lot more developers that in the long term that start using your product simply because of how good the developer experience is. And as you progress into that and you make better and better and better developer experience, you have this kind of sense of a developer community, a developer love that builds around your product. There's a reason why there are developers around certain packages that really, really love their products and really love their packages and their community advocates and stuff like that. And it's primarily because of how DAs put in, developer advocates put in to kind of make that experience extremely seamless. But coming back to your previous question, I think as a developer advocate, especially at a startup, you're really faced with two challenges. One is like, you're trying to figure out what makes the developer experience the best. And number two is you're trying to make the developer experience better. And that's what I mean by like, you're always in this like founder approach. You're using the founder, if if you're a developer advocate, so you're not really thinking about, okay, what product market fit will this particular problem have? But you're thinking more of like, okay, how can I improve this developer experience? Let me try this experiment on developers and see what the engagement's like. Let me see like how many people actually installed this. How many people tried this out? So you're always in that kind of test and iterate, test and iterate, test and iterate approach. And especially at startups, I find that to be very rewarding, especially when you have that entrepreneurial experience. Right. Yeah, because I feel like you're the tip of the spear. Like if a startup is developer focused, the developer advocates are probably the people who are closest to that like intersection of product and customers. Your sales team might understand the customers really well. Your product team might understand the product really well, but you're like right in the middle there and can bring them together in a way that actually, I think for early stage startups, like does build that awareness and community. But I also think it informs the product direction and sort of overall growth of the company. So like my first real job out of college was I was a developer evangelist at Twilio. And at that point in time, we were 50 people. So we were pretty tiny. And there were constantly things where myself and my coworkers would like observe something at a hackathon or a conference and like take a note of it. Like, oh, this person's really confused by this or they like wanted to do this. And you pass that along to the product team and then that becomes part of the roadmap, right? And like that is difficult to measure the importance of, but incredibly valuable. I definitely agree. I mean, Every single day of my work is packed with calls with engineering and product and marketing, right? So I enjoy that. It's not for everybody, but I definitely do enjoy when you can technically literally be directing the product from a developer standpoint, right? right? Of like, what would make the developer experience better? Because at the same time, you're putting yourself in the shoes of that developer and you're like, what would make me want to use this product more? What would make me want to use Pentium more? So I think... That's one part I really, really love about role. Yeah. That's awesome. So I know that Pangea is a sort of like security developer platform and that previously you worked in some other security like products. I've had this conversation with a bunch of people, but like to me, security and software engineering are fairly disciplined. And the communities of people that exist in each of those worlds tend to be somewhat separate. How did you sort of make that transition from like, I'm a hacker in the hackathon, like building stuff sense to like, I'm a hacker and like the security sense? That's a great question. I think coming back to my background, I love math. And I think it was only after I went to the University of Maryland, I double majored in math. Yes. That's where I learned about MLH, by the way. (laughs) They're a great community, great hackathon. Anyways, so I think 
when I started studying number theory and group theory and cryptography, I seemed to like enjoy that a lot because I was more of a person where like every time I learned a really cool math concept, I go to like Startup Shell's the startup club at UND. It's a great place, startupshell.org. But every time I go there, I go and like explain stuff to everybody at Startup Shell. I'll be like, hey, like I learned like the Diffie Helmet Key Exchange. Let me explain that to you and I'll pull up a whiteboard. And I basically like every single time I try to like think about why does that matter to me, right? Why would I care about if like I found out a way to generate like a random number, right? Like, how does that make a difference? And I think once I started to like bridge the gap between looking at, okay, let me go like look at the WhatsApp security white paper, right? Which is a great read. And I'd be like, oh, wait, they're trying to generate a symmetry key from like two asymmetric keys. I can get into that. But basically like relating that and then bringing that concept of product we use every day, like WhatsApp or like these messaging platforms, and then talking about and then encryption and how like these algorithms that I'm just explaining to you works in, I think that kind of blows people's minds. And I think the turning point for me that made me really think about security and why it's so cool was when I like studied, you know, how like TLS works, how we create encrypted connections. And then it wasn't even that, but it was like when I was able to like simulate like encrypting a message using RSA, um, I think it was like Wolfram Alpha or something like that. It's a slightly better. But I think when I was able to do that, I was just like, holy cow, that's so cool. Like the fact that all of this is done within a second of loading HTTPS website, I think was mind boggling. That's how I got into it from more of the math side. And once I did that, I was like trying to relate that to like stuff I was building. We had always been hacking stuff, but I was just like, oh, like, can I build my own time-based OTP service? What does it involve? And it's actually just very simple cryptography. So yeah, I mean, I'd go into doing that and that's kind of how I started falling in love with um, cryptography and then like cybersecurity. That's really cool. It's funny, like I was terrible at math and I have heard so many people explain like, oh, it's all about the teacher. It's all about like getting you hooked on it, like that kind of thing. I have friends who are really good at math and they love it in the same way you do. And it just like never clicked with me. But I have always loved like CTFs and things like that. So like, even though I haven't understood a lot of the underlying concepts, you know, it's a similar like tinkerer's mindset to messing around with like a capture the flag or something. But it sounds like you're really hard on the like, let me figure out how this actual like cryptography algorithm works, dissect it down to like the simplest form, recreate it and like put it back together. And that's kind of your way of understanding how these like pieces of software that most people just use a library for kind of like function. So the one thing I really loved was definitely dissecting that and breaking it down. But I think the thing that gave me the most joy was when I'd go to a friend of mine and I'd be able to explain that to them and they get the same excitement that I did. And that would kind of validate that. Okay, this is actually pretty cool. It's not just me that's gone out of my mind. It's like, this is actually pretty cool. So I think that was like the most exciting part of the whole process for me. (laughs) Probably a good thing to be excited about as a developer advocate. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think that's kind of why I like dev advocacy because I love getting on calls with people, which is a lot of your job is going to be meeting people, meeting developers, random developers that have genuine problems with your product. And you are trying to like rep your product. You are trying to make sure they use your product. But at the same time, you're also like trying to help them become better programmers. Right. Yeah. So 
it's kind of like you're doing more than just selling your product, right? So it's a lot of fun in that sense. Yeah, that's really cool. So at Pangea, how do you teach traditional software developers about these security concepts? So I think that's been like pretty hard problem, right? I know myself from ever since I've been like hacking stuff together, no developer ever starts as an enterprise developer. So there's usually like no compliance regulations that they're bound to, right? So security for a lot of developers is more like, okay, I really don't care about this. I really don't need this. I can make my Firebase database publicly accessible. I can keep all my secrets in a .env file and deploy it. And it should be fine, right? Like for a lot of hobby projects, that's what the general norm is, right? And it's kind of wild because, for example, a lot of the developer's journey, like no developer starts with learning about testing. No developer starts, oh, you know, I'm going to write the best Python tests and like build my app. No, they're just going to go build a product and then they're going to be like, oops, it broke. And then they're going to be like, oh, I got to go add this in. So I feel like just like testing and now people have started, you know, building tests into as they built the products. But I feel like security, similarly, especially for apps and web apps, have always been like pushed back, right? But I think it was only like, for example, if you have a simple HTML form and you don't escape your characters, you could just it, it cross that script. Or you could put in like JavaScript in there saying alert, you've been pwned or something like that. And basically, you could just get an XSS attack, right? So I think it was only after that, I was just like, wow, that's really impressive in terms of how you could actually do that. And I think it was after that, that it was like, oh, like, let's look at how we can do stuff a little safer without spoiling my experience, right? I don't want to be spending days building a secure app, especially when, like, I'm not sure if people are going to use it. I'm doing a very scrappy project, running it out, checking if the market will want to use the product. So a lot of other security companies are basically at doing like shift left security, which is as you push your code, we'll test your code, analyze that there are no vulnerabilities. But like as a hacker developer, you still don't care about that because you don't even have users yet. You don't even have data coming in. There are reasons to care about it. Don't get me wrong. But all I'm saying is, from like a genuine hacker developer approach, adding that amount of security to your app is probably not something you'd think about, right? I think that's what we do at Pangea. We basically provide APIs to which you can like bake in security into your code, right? So for example, let's say you need to be able to store your secrets, right? Your EMV secrets. You can use like Pangea Vault, which will kind of let you add your secrets in and you can support it anywhere. So everywhere you deploy your app, you could like pull your secret securely from Pangea. Or like, for example, let's say you're building like a chat bot and you need to be able to send information across, right? And sometimes people submit PII. And these are stuff that you know, you're like, yeah, you know, like people might submit PII, but like, do I really care about it right now? And with just three lines of code, you can basically redact that PII. So like, we basically kind of let you add insecurity and we like try to do it in just a few lines of code. So that's not like a painstaking process. We want to make it as exciting as adding like the newest database to your app or we want to make it as exciting as that process. So that's what we do. We provide IP detection, file scanning, file intel, all of this stuff, something as simple as like, let's say you're building a form, people are uploading files, your app blows up and now you need to scan files. And this is like pretty common, you know, like a lot of hackers have been building like AI, gen AI apps where like they just upload images and they unpickle their models. And there are ways you can inject pickle vulnerabilities, right? And we provide you with APIs that 
that are powered by CrowdStrike, powered by reversing labs, which you traditionally wouldn't be able to get access to because these are enterprise security tools. So we kind of provide this to you so you can like add it in your code in just a few lines so you don't have to kind of worry about it as an afterthought. That's really cool. It's really reducing the barrier of entry for this stuff. Because when I think about all of the hobby projects I've made, some of them never had any users. Some of them have had a surprising number of users. Most of them are somewhere in between. But I don't necessarily build them with the expectation that a lot of people will be interacting with them. And so security really isn't at the forefront of my planning. But it's also not like something I don't care about. Right. And so like, it kind of sounds like you're solving for like, that pain of, yeah, like right now, security takes a lot of research and like specific expertise to do right. Yeah. And if I don't trust myself to do it right, I may not do it at all. But this is an easy way to do it right. There are two ways to look at this, right? One way is coming looking at, especially if you're working at a startup, you're looking at it from the top down. So there's an organization called CISA that kind of sets regulations. It was started a few years ago and it sets regulations on how people can build secure apps and stuff like that. And so CISA is joining in with a couple of other nations to start this movement called the Secure by Design movement, which basically helps you set best practices on how you should go ahead with making sure your app is secure as you build it out. Because like I think one thing developers don't realize is you could build an app and it could blow up. Like, for example, that COVID self-checker app, I thought right. it was just going to get 10 users, right. right? And then one morning I wake up, I look at Google Analytics and it's just like, holy cow, like a couple of newspapers have picked this up and this is being used by a ton of people. Now, I wasn't collecting PII there, but what if I was? So these are stuff that you never think about, but like every line of code you write might potentially be used by tons of users. And as developers, I think we need to be extremely responsible to build like secure by default code, right? So as you mentioned, I think at Pangea are doing is primarily trying to like make it the fastest way to add like basic security into your app so that you can have like a seamless user experience. You provide a seamless user experience at the same time as not have a crappy developer experience. Yeah, that's great. So I want to switch gears a little bit. I know you mentioned that when you were in college, you did hackathons. I'd love to hear more about that. Because I think for a lot of people who go to hackathons, it is their first experience of that tinkering hacker kind of mindset. For you, it was somewhere in the middle. Like you've been doing that for a while before you went to college. Yeah. And so like, how did hackathons actually factor into sort of your educational like experience? Yeah. It's kind of a controversial opinion, but I was never a big fan of hackathons. And... The reason is because I understood the value of it and how it let me code. But my main reason I didn't enjoy it as much was because I'd seen a lot of my friends that were like building stuff they'll build over two days and then they wouldn't work on it. And I feel like my introduction to like writing code and building apps and building products was more from like, there's an actual problem that's going to last not for two days, but like for years. And like, it's basically how do you like go ahead and solve it? So I think until my first few hackathons, I didn't realize that it's more about like the educational experience that you get from it and not really about the project. So the hackathon project is not as important, but like the experience you get, the fun you get out of it, I think is what's more impressive. And I think I only learned after I went for BitCamp, which was UMD's hackathon hosted in partnership with MLH. So I went for a few of the BitCamps before that, but most recently I built this thing called Karen AI, which 
it was a project that would basically take your current customer complaint. So like, let's say you were at like McDonald's and like your burger got one jalapeno instead of two. You could put that in and it would respond like a Karen. And I was big into trying out audio AI models. I am a musician myself. And so I kind of love playing around with stuff like that. So I took Karen voices from YouTube and TikTok and trained a voice cloning model that would clone a Karen's voice. And so we basically plugged that in so that it would basically run the thing and load that into the model that would clone a Karen's voice and play it out like a Karen. So I thought that was a cool project. I mean, and we kind of had to pitch it as like this product that was helping people who are introverted stand up against customer support and how amazing that cause is. So anyways, but we won the second place for the Razzle Dazzle. It's like the funniest project. So a win is a win. So (laughs) Hey, yeah, can't complain. Yeah, I feel like there's like that like kind of like fine line between standing up for yourself to customer service and then being like a little too entitled about what you're asking for. Yeah. Yeah. So it was funny because we posted that on my friend Fetty, uh, who I worked on this with, he tweeted, a, he launched a Twitter thread on that. It got like 150K impressions. And wow. it was funny because there were responses where people were going on Coinbase support and putting stuff in here and copying that over to Coinbase support. And we're just like, that's so funny like that people are using this. So it was funny seeing people actually use this. in produ- We never used it in production. We never... Well, it was kind to- of a joke, but people started using it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I have a question about your sort of like hot take on hackathons. Yeah. Why is it important for people to keep working on projects like that? And do you ever have throwaway projects? I'm curious because like I've had a similar debate with other people before, but why is that so important? I feel like it also depends on what angle you get into hacking from, right? Like how you become a hacker. For me, it was more about like finding a problem, making sure that problem exists and like building a product to solve it. But for a lot of people that, extremely smart as well like for them it's been a lot of like let's go build this product out and then like figure out what to do with it right i'm not saying one approach is better than the other i'm just saying like it depends on how you were introduced to it which kind of like i've noticed that people that usually are introduced to like primarily like building products from like more of entrepreneurial civic problem solving sense you usually tend to like build lesser throwaway projects because usually they're like terrible coders like me or they find the thrill in looking at the problem, understanding the problem, and then building it rather than building it, right? So I'd say it's different for different people. A lot of my friends that weren't building projects learned how to like build real world use cases at Hackathon. So I definitely do see the value. But I just think for like me, at least, I felt that Hackathons were not if as much value simply because I was never used to at least in the start, I was never used to like building a project and like throwing it away because usually like the building product stage would usually come at the end and not at the start. I mean, as, as I started participating in hackathons and building a product like Karen, I was just like, this is actually a ton of fun, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. I am a big fan of the avant-garde hackathon project. I, I do think that, I don't know, like my hackathon hot take is that hackathons are actually a really bad environment to build products in. Yeah. That the main value that I've gotten, and I think a lot of people have gotten from them, is it's a space to like experiment with new things, like technologies and ideas, have some kind of support network 
and not have any risk associated with it. Because for most developers, like the vast majority of projects they build are class projects or work projects. And hackathons provide an alternative to that where it's like, no one's grading you, your job performance doesn't depend on it. And it can be a throwaway project. And so I actually think that like flipping what you're saying on its head, I actually think that is the like main benefit of a lot of hackathons is that it is a throwaway project in the same way that like, if you're studying to be a painter, you're probably sitting there like sketching an apple like a hundred times and no one wants to see that, right? Like it's like totally uninteresting. I think hackathons are kind of similar for programmers. Also, I mean, there are hackathon projects that have done really well, like Redash. But that's the exception. Yeah, that's an exception, for sure. But like, there are projects that I would not like to deny that that have done really well, like Redash. The one that was acquired by Databricks. So, there have been a couple over the years that got originally. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I think it is definitely valuable. For me, the exciting part, I think about hackathons was not playing around with new technologies. It was like partnering with my friends who have like really funny ideas yep. and building them out because at the end of the day, like somebody's going to be like, oh, this is actually pretty sick. So, <laughs> right. So, and having that like shared experience. Yeah. 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 I agree. I agree. So. Yeah. Totally. I also think that the other thing, that, that tends to be really big about hackathons is like often people do meet their future co-founders or like collaborators there, even if the project doesn't become anything. And I think often people discover like technologies that really resonate with them, whether it's yeah. like an API or a language or a framework it might be the first time you try React or it might be the first time yeah. you try an AWS and you take that with you. And since this is a DevRel podcast, getting back to the DevRel side of things, I think Bitcamp, for example, was probably like a great place for me to network with other DevRel people. Yeah. Simply because like you never get a chance to like meet a lot of these people because it's I mean it's usually like the people giving talks at conferences are usually software engineers. But like at hackathons, you have like DevRel people. Like, for example, I network with people from the Cockroach DB DevRel team and various different DevRel teams. And it's really cool understanding like I would just ask them what their jobs like. And that's kind of where I also learned about DevRel. It was from hackathons. And I was like, wow, this is so cool. I kind of want to do this. Uh, <laughs> I think that's kind of where I learned about the term DevRel and what, what it entails. So, yeah. That's awesome. If you can believe it, I had the same experience, but 10, 12 years ago, something like that. Yeah, but yeah. I, I also learned about DevRel from hackathons. So I feel like we've covered a lot of ground here. Yeah. The thing that we haven't really gotten to yet and where I'd like to kind of finish up is yeah. you mentioned earlier that there were some like content creators that have just been really exceptional at like teaching developers particular skills. Yeah. Who is that in the security space? Like who do you follow? Who do you look at to learn about like new bleeding edge like security concepts? That's a great question. I think some of the people that I follow is the person called Meg West. She's a very good person. She does CDF sometimes and talks about cybersecurity breaches. But like I think Although I technically do like security stuff, where I'm more in the app dev space. So when I look at content and dev advocates, the people I'm collaborating with are people usually in the app dev space, right? Because we aren't targeting security engineers. We're trying to get relate to app developers. So when we talk about app developers, I mean, Lee Robinson, I've been following him for years now. His YouTube channel has been there for very long. Theo is honestly one of my favorite YouTubers makes a lot of great content on different frameworks. But I guess there are multiple people from like, you know, for example, the super based content team. They're just wild with memes. I love following them and like learning 
at the end of the day, like as a developer, like everything you're doing is not just like reading like papers and documentation. You're also like making extremely funny and dumb memes. So I think ingesting that content was also like very helpful as a dev advocate. For example, at Pangea, like we started making memes and they started doing pretty well. We did Taylor Swift cat videos to explain cybersecurity and they did surprisingly well. And I think those have been like some of my favorite dev advocates. That's awesome. I feel like you're going to have competition for uh, Swift on security. Do you follow that account? Oh, I actually have. We aren't really competing on with them because like... No, like I, know. I know you're not really competing, but yeah. <laughs> but you're right. You're bringing up that point. But that's another account I forgot to mention, but I, I really love their content, Swift on security. <laughs> We're trying to bring in the cats and Swift on security. <laughs> you have both. Yeah. That's awesome. The question I always like to end on is sort of more of like an introspective question, but is there anyone out there in the world, like an aspirational figure that you would love to just like grab for a couple hours and take them to lunch and pick their brain? Someone in science, tech, math, anyone. I guess it would be like Paul Graham. I've always found him to be really interesting in, I mean, in his essays as well as, he's also a programmer. He started out building stuff on Lisp and then he started building startups. So I think one thing that's really excited me is just like understanding the way he thinks. And I think just grabbing lunch with Paul Graham would be super fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He seems like he'd be a really intense dude. I've never met him, though. Yeah, yeah. And I guess the second person would be probably like Justin Kahn, simply because I think he's just so cool. His content is so cool. And like he runs his YouTube channel now. And he just seems like a very interesting person because he's all over the place in terms of what he does. So I think one thing that I've always been doing is problem solving. And I think secondly, I've always liked to, in a way, make people laugh and a lot of the times it's been like making yourself the meme for educational purposes and also like making people like happy at the other end so i've seen people like justin Khan do that and stuff like that so and including like people like theo that have been very cool so yeah those two would probably be the people i'd love to go to lunch with <laughs> great choices well thank you so much for uh, spending the time with us i really enjoyed our conversation and we'll include some links to, you know, all the stuff you're working on and places to find your work online. But I hope everyone enjoyed listening and we'll subscribe for more episodes soon. And happy hacking. Yeah. Happy hacking and happy holidays. Happy holidays. <laughs> the State of Developer Education is brought to you by Major League Hacking. To find out more about Major League Hacking and how we're educating the next generation of developers and helping the world's leading companies reach them, visit sponsor.mlh.io. And make sure to search for developer education in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen, and click like and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. And if you like it, please don't forget to leave a review, and we'll give you a shout out on a future podcast. On behalf of the team here at Major League Hacking, Thanks for listening and helping us empower the next generation of technologists. Happy hacking.